Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today I'm going to conclude our series entitled More, Jesus from Beginning to end. And last week, I began to conclude our series, if you will, with the first part of this message uh, as we talk about what it means to press in, to press on. And as we have looked at throughout this series, uh, what, the, what the word more or what more of God means, we've talked about how the work of God through the gospel is leading us for our own growth and maturity to, to the full likeness, the transformation into the image of Jesus Christ. And so today, I want to continue to encourage you in this. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to pick up with verse 12 and read through verse 24 as I did last week, just to give us some context, and then we'll come back and dial in to verses 16 through 24 for the message. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in the love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with the holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. We talked about last week how Paul is giving final instructions, really exhortations, to continue to pursue the more that God wants for us, that God has for us, that he is working in us. And I used another familiar concept from Paul in Philippians to help us kind of qualify this when Paul describes how he in his own life is pursuing the more that God has for him. And he says this, he just simply says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus to which God has called me. And we said this, that the way onward in the Christian life to pursue God's more is always by pressing inward with our life. And so we see that God gives more grace in the Christian's life when we press in in order to press on. I introduced four areas to you last week, and I just want to give the first two as kind of a summary. Uh, You can capture more of those in last week's message But the four areas that Paul identifies for us here 
in order to press in, to press on. First of all, was to submit your life to spiritual leadership, he begins in verses 12 uh, and 13. And he exhorts the Christians to respect the spiritual leaders that are over them, and, and not only the persons, but the work that they are charged to do by God. We talked about how that means to make an intentional decision to acknowledge someone and something that God is doing in your life for your life. We talked about the value of relational proximity as a biblical essential for faithful spiritual leadership and how pressing on for God's more in your life begins by pressing in to submit your life to spiritual leadership. The second area we talked about to press in was to surround your life with spiritual community. And so we learn that the things that spiritual leaders are charged to do, to lead in in your life, are not only for them to do, but are to be regular qualifiers or distinctives of the church community at large. And these are given to build a, a culture of health and vitality for life, a, a wholesomeness as the community as a whole centers itself on Jesus. And so pressing on for more in your life means pressing in, not only to submit to spiritual authority or leaders, but also to surround your life with spiritual community. And so today, as we continue to see how it is that God gives more grace when we press in to press on, I want us to look at these last two areas where we need to press our life in to see God's more continue to lead us. This week, a question crossed my news feed, and it simply said this, what would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? What would you attempt if you knew you could not fail? And you know, for an instant, I went, man, that's a really challenging question. And then as soon as that instant passed, I thought, wait a minute. No, it's not. That is lame. That's what that is. That's totally lame. And I began to think about this because so quickly we get caught up in these little quips, these little cliches, especially in a, a world of 140 or 280 or less characters. This is not a new question. We've heard it many times in, in many different ways, and I've even asked it of myself a few times, but it seems obvious that the intent of this question is to do what? To challenge you to dream bigger, right? To challenge you to reach for the stars, to, to challenge you to push beyond where you are for that new life, right? I mean, if you could not fail, imagine, imagine what you could do, right? You sense I'm setting you up, do you not? Yes, you're right about that. Here's the truth, friends. Here's the truth. If you knew you couldn't fail, you wouldn't be attempting anything because knowing you could not fail would mean nothing would be an attempt. Am I right? I know I'm right, so you can agree with me. And I got to thinking about the idea behind this motivational quip I don't know I, I always preferred the demotivator posters right like I could get that but the motivation sometimes came to me uh, uh, in ways that I, I thought you know I want to buy into that but at the end of the day that question is totally useless it's completely misleading 
And it borderlines on deceiving for us. But we give ourselves to these so often because sometimes, yea, even often, we approach our spiritual growth with the same kind of folly that this question entertains us to give ourselves to. When we look at the Christian goal, as Paul lays it out in Ephesians 2, mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. Often we think, well, what can I do to get there? And listen, any, any shortcut is legitimate as long as we arrive at the end, correct? And you go, well, wait a minute, I don't know because, right, do the end justify the means or vice versa? And so often in our spiritual life, we look for shortcuts, we look for back doors, we look for secret, secret entrances or pathways, we, we fall into hollow promises, yay, that kind of a question that we just began with. And all of these arise because we're looking for a shortcut to God's work and to God's plan in our life. As if God didn't know the shortcut existed, but we've done him a favor and a service by finding it for him. Friends, God is not opposed to your effort in spiritual growth. But as many have said through the ages, God stands adamantly opposed to your earning his transformation. You see, that's diametrically opposed to the gospel for you to earn what God freely gives. And what God wants to do is to bring us in to the process that he has for us. Sometimes the short path is the best path. And God gives us, leads us along that path. Other times, it's the worst path we can take. And so God leads us a different direction intentionally. Maybe a better question would be this one. What would I do if I knew the promise maker was always faithful as the promise keeper. What, what would I do if I knew the one who made the promise was always faithful to keep the promise? That's more the question that I want to press upon our hearts and minds today. Because, friends, as we enter into this area of discussion today, we can quickly go awry in, in, in one of two wrong ways. Number one, we can just throw it off and go, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I've tried that before. It didn't work. I'm done with that. Kind of like I've done my gym memberships. That's the last reference I'll make to that today. I promise. Most likely. Or we can run the other direction and believe that just keeping to these things will in fact accomplish what we want them to. Friends, this question that we dare to answer for our lives leads us to press on for more because God's more in our life is never in question. It's not iffy. Like, it's not, I don't know if I'll get it or not, right? If I do this stuff, how do I know if I get it? Because Paul reminds us of this in Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He'll carry it all the way to the very end for which he started it. 
And so therefore, a chapter later, two chapters later, actually, Paul exhorts us, therefore, continue to work out your salvation, for it is God working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. God is the promise keeper, friends. He is faithful. He will do it, that which he has promised to finish that which he has started. And so today, we press on by pressing in. And the third area I want you to see today is this, to discipline your life for spiritual vitality. Discipline your life for spiritual vitality. It's interesting, in the first area, there were a couple of words that struck us against our fleshly nature, submit and authority, (laughs) right? Number two, In the second area of surround your life with spiritual community, it challenges us by authenticity. Do I really want to be authentic? Do I want to be raw and real with people? Okay, you go first, right? That kind of thing. Well, here when we come to this, we hear another one of these just words that we don't necessarily like, and that's discipline. Discipline your life for spiritual vitality. Paul instructs the individual Christians as he moves into verse 16 with exhortations that aim at at life-givingness to our spirit. And pressing on for more means pressing in to the daily disciplines for spiritual vitality, friends. And here's what he says. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Now I want to press on you a little bit today day with these because we've heard these so often that they to themselves have become contemporary Christian quips and cliches that we can just quickly pass over, go, yes, that's good, and not entertain what is being said here. Rejoice always, he begins. We often miss rejoicing because when we think of rejoicing, we wait for something to come to us or to wash over us in order for us to be able to rejoice. Might I offer something is already washed over us that stands enabling us to rejoice eternally. And that's the blood of Christ in the forgiveness and the cleansing of our sins. But too often, we wait to feel happy before we begin to identify joy in our life. And this is not what Paul is saying to us. Paul is not telling us that the moment you feel the happiness, you ought to immediately start identifying. He's telling us to rejoice. How? Always. Always. This is not an instruction for us to look within because it is not an action that is dependent upon our situation or our circumstances. He is telling us to look always to the one who is our source of joy. Friends, Jesus is all that one needs to rejoice always. Does that mean it's easy? No, it doesn't mean it's easy. And usually when it is easy, we forget to do it. And when it's hard, we struggle because we don't want to do it. But rejoice, friends, is that practice that fills us, re, that's what the, 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 the first part of the word means, rejoying ourselves. So rejoicing means that it is a practice that fills us with the source And what it provides to us. And Jesus is the only one that fills us with eternal joy when we draw it from him. 
when we take Jesus as our joy, when we think about who he is, that, that God would become man and come to us on the earth and do what he has done for us, when, when he would teach and when he would love and when he would, would do all that he did with his life, and when we would see what he has done in our life because of what he accomplished when he was here in on the earth and when we see how he is working in us when we take joy in Jesus when we rejoice always in him there is a never-ending flow that is a source for us to fill our lives with God and that's what Paul is directing us to here and when we rejoice in Jesus it begins by confronting any other sources of joy that we've been drawing from that have replaced Jesus See, the reason our joy doesn't sustain us is because we strive to draw it from sources that just run out quickly. We get joy from things in this world. The problem is we demand upon the things of this world what only God can supply. And so we get disillusioned when it runs out. I don't know why it's not fun anymore. I don't know why I don't feel the same way about it. And when we begin to draw our joy from Jesus anywhere where we have been drawing other joys and replacing those joys with the joy we draw in Jesus, it confronts that to remind us and to show us those things will never satisfy. Jesus will never disappoint. The more you rejoice in Jesus, friends, the more with increasing, with increasing measure and manner that he will overflow in your heart and your life with unending joy. Now, I need you to hold that for a moment because there are a lot of arguments that we could begin to make here, but, and, and genuine arguments, but what about in this kind of a situation or that kind of a situation when hurt is real, when life is hard and all of those things? And I, I propose to you to begin with that Jesus is the eternal source of actual joy and not just happiness. But, but I want to see this in the context with which Paul is writing it to us here. And so let's move to his next exhortation. Pray without ceasing. And as we hold on to rejoice always, let's consider what he is saying about praying without ceasing. Is he just commanding us to, to entertain a ritual here? No. You see, the definitive aspect here is the continuing nature of our prayers. For Christian prayer has many aspects, but first and foremost, he is telling us to be constant and unending, unceasing in our prayers as we are drawing or rejoicing in Jesus. Surely many struggle with any prayer, so unceasing prayer seems absolutely impossible. I don't feel good about my prayer life. I don't feel accomplished in my prayer life. I pray for something to happen. I feel like nothing happens. I feel like a failure, right? I mean, that's, that could be descriptive of every Christian's prayer life at some point or another in their life. And so we're all in the same boat on that. But friends, prayers here that Paul is speaking of are not simply the recounting of our needs or only the recounting of the petitions. In other words, reciting a list to God. This is not what Paul is exhorting us in here. Surely that is a legitimate form of praying, but what Paul is, is, is exhorting us in here is the nature of our prayer life being one that is unceasing 
And it is the reciting of the joy sourcing that is coming from Jesus. In other words, he's telling us that in the way that we rejoice always, we should continue in that conversation with God. The constant and unceasing prayer that recounts all we know about the one who is our eternal source of joy is how we fill our lives with him and with his joy. Friends, the Christian life is a continual conversation with God through Jesus, about Jesus, in order to fill life with Jesus in every way. And friends, hear me. Not as a rote discipline only, but as an absolute dependence for life itself. There, there are some of you who have the gift of intercession and of petition and being quiet and still before God for extended periods of time and praying with increasing detail about the same situation, same fact, or same circumstance is of no burden to you. It is a great delight because you are gifted in that way. God has given you a burden to pray. That is not me. That is not me. And if you had to be still and on your knees to talk to God... I wouldn't be able to pray more than about 45 seconds at any one given time before I'm 15 seconds into a distraction. Like squirrels, like rule your mind when you get quiet and still to pray. Do they not? And that's a, like a, a symbol for distraction. That's all I mean by squirrel. Right, squirrel. But what Paul is saying is you, you can talk to God without end throughout your life, every moment of every day. Your eyes don't have to be closed. Your mouth doesn't have to be making a sound. In your mind and in your heart, that's all that has to be engaged in order for you to converse with God. But what you are conversing over matters. And what you are allowing to be rehearsed and recited in your mind and what you're churning in your heart, it matters. That's what Paul is begging upon us to understand because here's how he finishes this first exhortation. These are not three exhortations, friends. They're one. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. He says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things. Here's the problem with this. We try to give thanks for things that haven't genuinely filled us with gratitude. You ever done this? Don't lie. And it often happens because we simply try to say thank you without feeling any gratitude about it. In other words, there's no gratitude in us, and so thank you coming from us is very difficult. We've all experienced the pain and the discomfort of the pseudo-gratitude infection. Have we not? You know. You get that gift. And you open it. 
And you're opening it in front of the person who gave it to you right there. And it's absolutely the worst conceivable gift that you have ever received in your life. And when you open it, all of a sudden, any sense of life that could be reflected in your face is removed to an absolute blank stare of confusion that washes over you. And you go, what is this? And why would anyone with half a brain wrap it up and offer it to me? I mean, you're fighting. At this point, you realize they're sitting right in front of you, right? So you, you're not doing anything to try and give off the aura. But friends, it's already consuming the room. And then in that instance, your, mother voice, your mother's voice inside of you says, you be grateful and you say thank you. So you know what the situation is and you know what the right thing to do is. The problem is the Grand Canyon looks like a smaller step than the distance between those two when you have the discomfort of pseudo-gratitude infection. So you begin to contort your face into what you've always understood it felt like to smile, and you go, thank you. Now, some of you, you sell it. Oh, you've got that little, that, that expression of, of deep, intent feeling. You nod your head and you moan a little bit. Oh, thank you. And I mean, it's, it's like you're fighting to get those two words out, you know. And, and, and as you get them out, you, you begin to try and really sell it because then you begin to explain all the explanations of why you love it. You know, I, I just love this thing. Uh, it, 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 it's so, uh, it's just so. Uh, I've always wanted one of this um, and and the, the, it matches my socks that's what it matches and because of that, I'm going to wear it tomorrow and in your mind like you're stumbling through all of these words you could say to convince them of what everybody knows is not true in the room at this moment and they're even going I, I can't I'm not exactly sure how they feel about this at this moment and so you think if I actually wear it or use it tomorrow it'll convince them that I'm actually thankful right then in that instant, you put it on. You wear it. You're with them tomorrow, right? So often this happens over the holidays when family gets together. And, and you go out with them that next day and you see someone who wasn't at the instant of you receiving it. And they go, oh. and the infection immediately strikes them because they're going, what in the world are they thinking wearing that? Who in the world in their right mind would? And as they're asking that, they're actually asking this. What is that? But you're still selling it. Oh, this is, this is my thingy that matches my socks that, that so-and-so gave. I'm, I'll just love it. And in that instant, you actually project the infection of fake gratitude upon other people as their face contorts to say, I love it. You look wonderful in it. You know what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. The best part is when you're actually the gift giver and you knew this was going to happen. And you get to watch it all and act like you're really concerned. How often do we say, thank you, Lord? And then we begin to list all the wrongs about this situation. And if we just look at the bandwidth of time, energy, 
or space on the page that got taken up, taken up, excuse me, that got consumed, I'll go with that. Thank you, Lord, couldn't be measured in a pictogram because of all the other words that have littered the page through the litany of listing while we're not really thankful for it. Friends, not giving, that, that, that's not giving thanks. Thank you, Lord, but then listing all the wrongs of your circumstances or your situation. That, that's lip service. It's saying something you don't believe, that you don't feel or even think, but you do it out of obligation. You see, giving thanks in all circumstances means that we name the detail we find ourselves in. We name that circumstance. Doesn't mean we like it. Doesn't mean we feel good about it. None of that matters. You don't have to do any of that to give genuine thanks for anything. But listen to me. It means we name the situation. We name the circumstances. We can list the details, but listen to me. At the end of it, we exhale by saying this. I am thankful. Not because I enjoy these things but because I know that they are in my life and you will not allow them to be wasted for my life, Lord. And we give thanks to the Lord and what He is doing and wants to do through them. Not because we've perfected that pseudo-gratitude, but because we are drawing our joy Not from the situation, not from the circumstance, not from the gift. But from the one who is unending in his supply of joy to us. Friends, the more we fill our hearts with Jesus, the more that true gratitude flows out of us, no matter what is happening to us or around us. And and, and you need to be prepared and you even need to practice these things. Because if you wait until you get into the instance or the situation... It would be terribly difficult to do something you're totally unfamiliar with. The more we fill our hearts with Jesus, the more gratitude flows out of us, no, no matter what is happening to us. And here's what Paul says. This is an interesting phrase to end this sentence with that I believe really helps us to capture the whole exhortation. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I mean, there's not many times in the Bible when you can go, what is God's will for my life? And the verse actually says, this is God's will for your life. But this one says that. And what he's telling us is that when we rejoice always, when we pray without ceasing, when we give thanks in all things, that we are consuming our life regardless of the situation, the circumstances, the pain or the the happiness that the surroundings of our life may be providing for us. We are choosing to draw our joy and to draw our life from the one who gives it faithfully and always in the same way. And nothing will define us. Nothing will fill us more than the one who is our joy, our peace in all things. This final portion, I believe, threads the three exhortations into one practice. 
Friends, the will of God for you will be known by you as you continue in this pattern of rejoicing, praying continually and unceasingly, and giving thanks out of the overflow of Jesus filling you. So often we see these as three individual exhortations. I believe Paul's making them one complete action. That means one without the other two is incomplete and genuine. We avoid our own spiritual growth by pseudo-practices of Christendom, of which we are all familiar with. When we practice these things disconnected from the whole. And Paul's exhortation to us, in this practice we center our lives on the only one who is our life, Jesus himself. And God reveals his will to us when we center our lives on him. That's what he is, he, he, is, he is striving after here. If you want more from God, you must center your life on him. And you can't just center your life on God by throwing out a few pithy little quips that are offered so quickly but so meaninglessly. That, that friends, this is, a, this is a labor in which God engages us so that he can lead us to see about us what we, or what he sees about ourselves, so that he can bring for us what, what, and we can understand what he has for us, what he wants to give to us. And in the midst of these disciplines for spiritual vitality, we, we must regard all that's taking place. God doesn't want to relate to you outside of the scope of reality in this world. He wants to be right in the middle of it. That's why he put us here. That's why he came to meet us here. Christianity in its purest, best form isn't some kind of altered state that occurs outside of the reality of time and situation and circumstance in our life. That Jesus is good and he's joy right in the middle of those things. But if you won't believe and trust in him, you can't experience him in the midst of those things. He says this, do not quench the spirit. You see, following Jesus is not about us earning, as I've already said. It is about us learning. And it requires the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, God's own Spirit within us. And we must learn to live in full dependence upon His Spirit every day of our life. When we quench the Holy Spirit, we stop the flow of God's power and of God's purpose in our life. We're left completely on our own. When we fail to search his word, when we fail to obey what he's already said to us, when we neglect to listen to the Holy Spirit and we just move on with our life without giving consideration to what the Spirit is saying to us. Do not quench the Spirit means that we cultivate dependency upon the Holy Spirit for all things. Even when we know the answer and we're confident of it, we pause for the moment and go, Lord, is this for now? what you have and want for me. We let the Spirit speak. Do not despise prophecies, he says, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. You see, next to listening to the Holy Spirit, listening to God's people who he's put around us is critical for us, friends. We test every word according to God's word, and we are careful not to despise or to dismiss. Listen, I can tell you this. If pride is ruling you, you'll dismiss everyone, even those you trust the most. 
So test every word, he says. Why? Because people are not infallible. And these prophecies, he's not talking about foretelling or prediction making. He's talking about forthtelling. In other words, encouraging one another. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love. That, that's what forthtelling about God's word specific to our situation and pouring hope into us through the gospel. God speaks through his people. Sometimes they know what they are saying and sometimes they don't know how they're being used. But God can still use them. And when God's people speak and it is in alignment with what he said and the spirit is leading, we can receive it so that we hold to it until God brings it about for us. God speaks to us through his people to reinforce for us what he has revealed to us in his word, what he is saying to us by his spirit, what he is working in us and his will for us. And then he says, abstain from every form of evil. Finally, Christians must be careful to not let the practices of their life be the deceiving point in their life. Friends, nothing is more deceiving than the practice of sin in an instant or in an ongoing manner. Why? Because the practice of your life and every moment that you get away with it further reaffirms the paradigm with which you perceive everything about your life. Well, nothing's happened yet, so it must be okay. And if it's okay, then I need to reinterpret everything else in light of this. No, friends, trusting the word of God often means that we act to obey even before we fully understand. And that's why Paul's telling us to abstain from every form of evil. Christians guard against participation in sinful practice of any form. You see, friends, spiritual disciplines don't get you to God. But they are the practices through which you become more like Jesus because more of God comes to you as you trust to obey. And every Christian that presses on for more strives to press in to the disciplines for spiritual vitality. Now, let me finish with this fourth area to press in. Paul concludes with a prayer, verse 23 and 24. And I want us to take this prayer because I, I want to apply it to you in this way. Area number four is this. Measure your whole life by transformation to Jesus. And I'll tell you briefly what I mean. Prayer intercedes for the whole of our being to be completely consumed and transformed into Jesus' likeness. Imagine, Christian, your whole life becoming more like Jesus. That's what God wants for you, not just in one area, though there may be times of your life and seasons where you give focus more to one area than the other. But what I am commending to you today in this fourth area to press in is for you to measure, to evaluate, to see, and to understand your whole life in the scope of all that God is doing. You see, God is sanctifying your whole being to make you completely like Jesus in every way. And God gives more to see our transformation in our actions so our body can be kept blameless. Did you get that? At some point in the past, from this point of prayer, Paul says that we were made blameless. When was that? 
when we confessed our sin, repented of it, and when God forgave us based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the Bible tells us we were justified at that moment. A legal verdict from God himself, the judge of all things, was made about us. And at that moment, we were made blameless. We're not striving in the labors of our life to achieve something that is not already true of us. But as we engage our life and our relationship with God, we are living out for what has already been accomplished and put on us. We're not earning our salvation. We're living out of it. And that's what he's saying to us today. Live in accordance with the way that God has already made you. Blameless. But friends, so often, we, we, we typically only think of holiness as, as, as our actions. And surely Jesus changes us on the outside. I'm, I'm not in any way reducing that. God transforms us so our outward actions, our words, our actions, and our deeds become more like him. But listen, friends, one spiritual victory doesn't make you Jesus. And one spiritual defeat doesn't make you condemned forever. That's my point. That, that transformation, the reality of what God has done for us is taking place within us in real time until he returns for eternity. God sanctifies our spirit and our soul so not only outward actions but our inner life becomes more like Jesus. And that's what I want you to understand Paul's prayer for you today. God transforms the thoughts of your mind. You don't Think the same way because of God's word that you thought without God's word. Is the word of God changing the way you think about life and about your life and about him and about other people and about situations that are coming up in your life? God transforms the attitudes of our heart. And the attitudes of our heart are those inclinations that we have about the things that take place around us. God changes those things so that a very similar situation or circumstances arise in our life now because God is doing more in us than it did at some point in the past. And we actually think and feel different about it because of the way God has changed us. We understand what we did in the past, but we don't experience the same. The motivations that drive us, God's changing those, friends. The reason you do what you do, God's transforming those as he gives you more. And sometimes, what only came about when you felt like you ought to do something, all of a sudden begins to come about because you see the value of it. And long before you experience it or feel it, you're pursuing it. And even deeper than this, God transforms your desires. You don't want the same things that you used to want when God is doing more in you. Your longings, the things that you really yearn for in your life have completely shifted. It's not just because you get older. Because listen, you can get older and you can still be as wicked as wicked can be. But you will not get more godly if God's not working in you. And if your longings aren't changing, there's a disconnect in you, no matter how well your outward actions are performing. 
Your understanding and the purpose of your life changes. Why? Because God is doing more work in you at deeper levels and and in ways that's very hard for us even to articulate. When God works for more, there is nothing from us, in us, or about us that is left untouched. And when you consider your life, Christian, let this prayer define the boundaries by which you observe, by which you assess, and which you evaluate God's work in you. Are you living more like Jesus in your everyday life? Are you learning to think according to his word, to to see others and to see the world according to his word, to feel about things according to what God God has said about them more than what the world or anyone else is saying about them or even what you used to say about them. Are you wanting? Are you desiring? Are you longing for more of the things that God desires to give you? Ask God to transform you to the deepest part of you where he sees you perfectly even when you don't fully understand you. Submit all of you to the full work that he wants to do for you. God, I want to press in to the authorities that you have placed in my life for my life. By the people you have put around my life for my life. By the disciplines in which I'm engaging my life to see more of you come in and in new and deeper ways in my life. But God, I want to see my whole life different. I don't want to be satisfied because I perform well in one instant and use that as a way to dismiss a a, a failure in another one. I don't want to feel bad about my failures because I wonder if you love me as much because I don't perform as well. I want to be anchored in this truth that your love is not contingent upon my performance. It's contingent upon your sons. And you've already said the full wrath of God's been satisfied in Christ on the cross. Don't see your life the way Satan wants you to see your life. See your life in the way God has painted the picture for you, Christ Jesus. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ is God's intention for your life. And until you get there in every way, in every form, in every dimension, in every manner, I tell you today, God has more for you. Will you live to receive the more that he has for you. Let's pray.